Welcome back to Psych Your Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. As always, I'm so glad to have you here with me. This is your first time. Thank you for joining us. If you're returning, thank you for coming back. As always, you know, I always thought maybe my mom, a couple family members would listen. I never thought that I'd be reaching people from around the world. So every time I look at my demographics and I see people from new countries, I see hungry, you know, um, places I never thought I'd be reaching people. I'm always ecstatic. So thank you for joining. I'm happy to have you. Uh, so this week, it's part two of the mass drug lab scandal. This week, we are in Amherst. Um, this is the lab that services the northeastern part of Massachusetts. And this part has to do of the scandal has to do with more addiction. Regardless of the extent, addiction is a problematic force in the lives of the addicted and their social networks. Some will excuse or minimize their own behavior or the behavior of others by stating that the problem is not that serious because they're still able to perform their day-to-day -day duties. Someone who is still performing at a sufficient level while addicted to one or more drugs is labeled high-functioning. The media and popular culture have numerous images of the high-functioning addict. Though these characters might make for good comic relief or set the stage for dramatic moments, they rarely depict the seriousness of the nature of addiction. Additionally, the real-life examples of the high-functioning addict are mentioned by news and media, but the coverage is not thorough and ongoing. The high-functioning addict will be represented by a person that displays limited functional impairment. They will be able to perform well at work, home, and in school, and with typical with very little typical conflicts and financial challenges that face what people normally think of as an addict. The high-functioning addict may convince themselves or others that their substance use is not problematic. They will often cite their ability to complete required tasks while dismissing their limitations. They may provide examples of others that use greater quantities or with higher frequencies than themselves to maintain their image. The National Institute of Health points to five separate subtypes of alcoholism or substance use with the functional subtype comprising of about a fifth of total populations of addicts associated with the characteristics, including high levels of education, stable jobs, supportive families, commonly middle-aged, a family history of addiction, which is about 30% of uh, functioning addicts in this category, a history of major depression, which is about 25% of addicts in this category. If high-functioning addicts truly exist, what separates them from non-functioning addicts? A relevant factor may be time. As addiction continues and progresses, the internal ability to function or level of support from external sources diminishes. So obviously, if you've been struggling with addiction for five years, your family and friends are going to give you more of a chance than people who have been struggling for 20 or 30 years. If you've been in and out of rehab, 20 or 30 times versus someone who's only tried to go into recovery once or twice, obviously you're going to have more support and people are going to give you more of a shot than somebody who, like I said, has been in and out of rehab 20 or 30 times. Today's high-functioning addict can be tomorrow's non-functioning addict. It's very much true. You can go from being a quote-unquote high-functioning addict to a non-functioning addict in literally a matter of days. The factors that separate functioning addicts from non-functioning include denial, family supports, employment, and legal issues. Denial is a powerful force in the life of a high-functioning addict. If someone is not willing or able to admit the power of addiction in their life, 
they may convince themselves that their problem is manageable. They'll look for justification to perpetuate their denial with statements like, I don't drink or use drugs every day. I only smoke, snort, drink, or uh, very rarely, and I never use needles. That's a big one when you're working in the recovery community. That is a big one. I never use needles. It's what uh, we call them recovery snobs, and the biggest way they differentiate themselves from other addicts is to them, their rock bottom is needles. As long as they don't use needles, it's not that bad. Nothing bad has happened to me, and I work hard so I get to play hard. That's a big justification for a lot of people. I work really hard so I should be able to play very hard. When addicts are in denial, they'll be less interested in taking responsibility for their actions, their poor decisions, and unwanted feelings. Instead, they'll blame others for their frustrations. These users may be able to convince their loved ones to deny or ignore the severity of their actions. This denial only leads to short-term and superficial benefits. With time and increased use, it cannot be maintained. Family and social supports can play another role in maintaining an addict's status as high-functioning through enabling. Enabling occurs when someone close to the addict, such as a spouse or family member, begins to take res personal responsibility for them. Enabling can be intentional or unintentional. An enabler will absorb the consequences that the addict would experience normally, make excuses and lie to cover up their behavior, accept blame for their actions, experience emotional distress and frustration as a result of taking too much responsibility for their behavior. With the enabler taking on more responsibility for the behavior of their loved one, the addicted individual is free to continue their lifestyle with minimal unwanted effects. If a poor outcome is experienced, the addict will be able to blame the enabler without accepting responsibility. This helps perpetuate denial. Some families may have more than one enabler. In fact, this is often the case. There may be multiple people that fulfill the short-term needs of their addicted loved one without regard to long-term risk. Having steady employment. This encourages people to believe they're not really addicted. They may think, well, if I was addicted, then there's no way I could hold a job down. So I must be fine. In many cases, the functioning addict can identify the value of the job, which makes it one of the last areas to suffer because jobs help maintain financial stability and they support, which then supports use. Structure and consistency to their day, which many people suffering from addiction lack. A sense of identity, which is removed from the addiction and the separation from home to reduce suspicion from family and friends. It's important to understand that enablers can exist in the workplace as well. Bosses or coworkers may inadvertently enable addicted employees by picking up their slack, extending deadlines, and giving them multiple second chances. Addiction is a highly associated with illegal activity. Some people, though, can use for extended periods of time without encountering problems with the law, if ever. If someone has never been pulled over for driving under the influence, possession of drugs, or attempting to purchase any illegal substances, they may believe that they never do anything wrong. Meanwhile, these people may have been forging prescriptions, drunk driving, or using illegal substances without thinking they did anything wrong because they've never faced consequences. The high-functioning addict may believe that it's only illegal if you get caught. In most cases, the addict will in time get caught. It is extremely difficult to abuse drugs without eventually meeting with some kind of legal penalties. While it is possible to be a functioning addict, the fact of the matter is that addiction will take a toll in some area eventually. 
Functioning optimally while addicted is arguably impossible. Eventually, as the addiction gets worse and becomes more and more problematic, priorities will rearrange and drug use will come into the forefront, knocking everything else to the background. Like any other disease that starts off with no symptoms or only slightly pesky ones, drug use and addiction can seem less than threatening for a while, but typically will grow beyond the addict's control. Now, on almost a daily basis from August 2004 to January 18, 2013, while working at the Amherst Drug Lab, Sonia Farouk was under the influence of methamphetamine, amphetamine, fentermine, ketamine, MDMA, MDEA, LSD, cocaine, or other narcotics every day she worked there. Not only did she do this in the lab, but also in court while she was testifying in relation to the cases. She also used her position in the lab to manufacture her own drugs for personal use. Like she literally did all the drugs, all of them, every single one, all of them. She did the drugs. I was smoking in the lab. I was smoking at home. I actually smoked in the evidence room. I was totally controlled by my addiction, she told someone. Sonia had stolen samples from her colleagues' tests and amended the lab database to cover her tracks. She had suffered from mental health issues throughout her life and, according to Rolling Stone magazine, had tried to kill herself in high school. Sonia had been smoking crack on her lunch break and was asked to take a drug test, which she tested positive for. A search of her bag later showed the ingredients for cooking her own cocaine, baking soda, candle wax, and modeling clay, along with utensils that she could use to make it. After searching her workstation, they found the vial of oxycodone and 11.7 grams of cocaine, along with a kit to make crack. Sonia had been smoking this crack on her lunch break, but it wasn't until she was pulled over for driving under the influence and a box of evidence was found in her truck that she was finally forced to face any real consequences. The state's attorney tried to downplay the initial situation as a one-off and allowed her to attend rehab, but dogged attorneys suspected it was far worse and they were right. At one point, she admitted that there were days she didn't even remember testing drugs. Eventually, Farrick pled, pleaded guilty to four counts of tampering with evidence, four counts of theft of a controlled substance from an unauthorized dispensary, and two counts of possession of cocaine in 2014. She ended up being sentenced to 18 months behind bars, followed by five years of probation and 500 hours of community service. She cried while she was sentenced. Now, the BBO's counsel methodically laid out a strong case that two of the prosecutors, Jane Kasmerick and her former co-counsel and supervisor, John Varner, inexcusably failed to disclose key evidence of Farouk's drug abuse and that they had received it far earlier on even as they were repeatedly called on to disclose this. And a bar counsel made an equally powerful case that a third prosecutor by the name of Foster effectively put her head in the sand to protect her colleagues from further inquiries in response to court orders, falsely telling the court that every document from the lead investigator's file had been disclosed and that Farrick's pre-arrest drug use had dated back only four months, but no longer so like i said they tried to paint it as a one-off when she got arrested that it was only this small four-month period of time but it's very clear and we're well aware 
that she had been doing drugs the entirety of the time that she worked at the office or at the lab. So that's categorically not true. Um, in fact, Farrick had been using drugs on the job for years, and prosecutors failed to disclose key evidence of her longstanding addiction that they had received from a lead investigator just weeks after Farrick's arrest, including 2011 drug treatment notes and reports of suspected missing drugs from her cases going all the way back to 2005. So that's at least six years that she was abusing drugs on the job. This evidence also notably contradicted the bold statement then Attorney General Martha Coakley had made in earlier January 2013 press conference announcing Farouk's arrest, where she said that Farouk's drug use did not implica implicate the fairness of the convictions the state had obtained against any defendants. At worst, prosecutors working for Coakley intentionally concealed this evidence and deceived the courts. Why? Perhaps they did not want to embarrass their boss after her premature announcement that it would not cause another drug lab scandal. Now, remind you, they had just arrested Annie Khan from the Boston drug lab. So they just had cracked the Boston drug lab scandal. So they suspect they were trying to keep from a second drug lab scandal and having to reopen her other cases. Or perhaps they wanted to keep defendants who believed they were guilty of drug crimes from voiding their charges. At best, the, they were aware, um, in the word of Kazmarek's lawyer, that they were cogs in the wheel of a larger institutional failure. Believing that other officials were responsible for investigating and disclosing this critical information, Kazmarek's lawyer argued that the ball was dropped without nefarious intent, but with disastrous consequences. So basically they're saying, yeah, we fucked up. We didn't mean to fuck up, but we did. We weren't trying to do it uh, on purpose to screw anybody over, but people got screwed over. That wasn't our intent. However, these conflicting claims were resolved as an attorney who has worked in criminal justice for two decades. Now, I came away from the hearings disturbed by a lot of what I heard. Uh, the prosecutor's testimony was often marked by disregard for the citizens to whom justice was being denied. For example, Anne Kaczmarek, the lead prosecutor on Farouk's charges, she received an email from detective weeks after Farouk's arrest containing detailed notes Farouk made in conjunction with her own drug treatment, pointedly identified as admissions, but failed to disclose them for years. At a BBO hearing, Kaczmarek claimed that she forgot about these recordings because assessing them, the harm Farouk caused to other defendants, wasn't my job. Kaczmarek said that she had all the evidence that I needed for my case, for my prosecution, and wasn't concerned with anything else. Even taking Kaczmarek at her word, she did not intentionally conceal records, although Bar Council made a strong case that she did. Her testimony is scary. Kaczmarek may not have needed Farouk's drug treatment records, but thousands of other citizens whose evidence Farouk touched certainly did. Even after a judge convened a hearing in 2013 to assess the scope and duration of Farouk's drug abuse, Kaczmarek herself received a summons, and she failed to ensure the Attorney General's office responded with complete or accurate information. If she truly believed it wasn't her job, at the very least, she had a duty to find out whose job it was and to make sure they knew of any undisclosed evidence she had. Former Assistant Attorney General Foster displayed a similar disregard for the court's inquiries. 
She was assigned to respond to defense subpoenas for the lead detective's file and to represent the attorney general's office at a hearing convened by a judge for the specific purpose of determining the timing and scope of Farouk's drug abuse on the job. She claimed that she relied on her colleague's word when she told the court everything in the detective's investigative file and that it had already been turned over. But Foster did nothing to confirm the accuracy of those assurances. And as a result, key evidence of Farouk's long-standing drug use held by the Attorney General's office was not disclosed for nearly two more years. Foster was an experienced prosecutor who had argued numerous appeals and murder cases, but she didn't ask her colleagues the most basic questions one would expect from a first-year lawyer, such as what exactly was disclosed, to who, when, and do we have a record that we provided it in the case the judge asks? Why didn't Foster do more? In her words, I didn't think I would really get anywhere by challenging my superiors. But asking such questions isn't a challenge to a colleague's integrity. It's a simple due diligence. And it's hard not to conclude that if the rights of these defendants had mattered to Foster, she would have tried harder. Throughout the hearing, I waited for Kesmeric and Foster to express some empathy for the thousands of people charged with drug crimes who were deprived of this information, and I heard references to their plight only once, and not at all from Foster, just from Kesmeric. According to transcripts of Farouk's 2014 sentencing, Kesmeric cited the impact of Farouk's tampering on the integrity of the other defendants' drug cases as a reason why Farouk should receive prison time. In other words, she only invoked concern for the harm that it caused the defendants to further her own prosecutorial goals. Now, when I said that she did all the drugs, I mean she did all the drugs. Like, I've worked in inpatient treatment. I've worked in several different fields in which I actually have to be tested in order to just be hired. In some cases, I have to be tested to be interviewed. She said at one point, she not only didn't get tested for drugs to interview, she didn't, they didn't test her for drugs when she got hired. You have to understand this is a massive warehouse filled with drugs. There was no super, little to no supervision. She was left alone with like a warehouse full of drugs that she was supposed to be spending all day, every day testing to see if they really were drugs and then like the purity of the drugs. And she was an addict from the moment she stepped through the door. And it is insane to me that when she wasn't, she said that she was using at the time she started working there. So to me, the idea that she wasn't tested in order to get the job. She wasn't tested until they suspected she was using. There was no random drug testing there. I've had been subject to random drug testing throughout the time of my career. So it, it just is ridiculous and insane to me that she was given this much freedom and leeway when she, basically her whole job is handling controlled substances. It makes no sense to me. In a similar vein, Foster testified that even after the undisclosed mental health records came to light and Commonwealth scrambled to handle the fallout, she had not thought about this case in two years since she left the Attorney General's office until she got subpoenaed. As for her 2016 testimony from which the court found she committed fraud, Foster argues it should not be used against her. You committing fraud should not be used against you? How is that even a thing? 
This is because she did not prepare for that here. Oh, I'm sorry. You didn't prepare, so they shouldn't find you guilty of fraud. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Even after four attorneys from the attorney general's office came to her house to meet with her. Oh, okay. Why not? Because Foster had no idea that she was going to be. How could you not have an idea you were going to be the focus? Had she known, Foster said, I would have been prepared. You're a lawyer. You should always be prepared. That's lame. In other words, when her fellow citizens accused of drug crimes had their lives on the line, Foster cared little about giving accurate testimony. It was only when the focus was suddenly on her and her law license that she took the time to give a shit. That's basically what we're talking about. <laughs> Those are just a little bit. Um, I'm really not going to like really, really get into it because there are literally tens and thousands of pages of testimony to go through. But there were 24,000 convictions. Uh, 16,449 of them were thrown out um, in a case that was brought by the ACLU of Massachusetts in the Committee of Public Council Services, CPCS, uh, the law firm and marks and once again i'm going to link that website that's on the mass.gov website so if you are a loved one you think possibly you may have been one of the cases that were thrown out obviously it's past the date to appeal however you could possibly if you think that you were affected by this you can join the class action lawsuit uh, so i will link that link below so you can check on the website um to Find out if that your case, if you or a loved one had a case that was affected by Ms. Duquesne or Ms. Farrick, you can call the toll-free hotline. That is 888-999-2881. The hotline is open Monday through Friday, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, the website I will link below as well. That is icori.chs.state.ma.us. Like I said, I will put all that information down below. Um, so if you are in the state of Massachusetts and you think that you are a loved one was affected by this, you can check the website or call the hotline and find out. Um, but that is the part two of the Massachusetts state drug lab scandal. Um, next time, Join me and we will look at the case of the John of God case. He was a Brazilian faith healer who and he was a medium and faith healer. And what he would do is he would say he was possessed by surgeons or doctors and he would perform medical healings. And when I say medical, I do mean he would get a scalpel and make some surgeries happen and I say make some surgeries happen because they weren't actual surgeries. He also got up to um, sexual abuse on a scale the likes of which even here in the United States we have not seen. It took decades to finally bring him to justice because people didn't believe the victims or take them seriously. And because, you know, he was supposed to be performing miracles, healing people with his faith. So uh, that is next week. That is the story of John of God. In the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things. <laughs>